0: Mariam Kaba is an organizer, educator, archivist, curator, and now officially a graduate of library school. Her work focuses on ending violence, dismantling the prison industrial complex, facilitating transformative justice, and supporting youth leadership development. After over 20 years of living and organizing in Chicago, she moved back to her hometown of New York City in May 2016. There, she co-founded the New York City chapter of Survived and Punished, whose national organization she also co-founded. While, uh, sorry, Survived and Punished is a grassroots prison abolition organization fighting to free criminalized survivors. While Mariam has in fact founded approximately 4 million organizations and projects, I am leaving it just to this one because that's where we met. Dean Spade is an activist, lawyer, writer, and law professor at Seattle University School of Law. Dean has been working to build queer and trans liberation based on racial and economic justice for the past two decades. Dean is the author of Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics and the Limits of Law, and Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next. Uh, Both of our guests have Um, authored and produced and facilitated a lot of projects in the categories of archives that we're going to be talking about. So while I didn't include those in their bios up front, um, their work will definitely be present throughout all our conversation today. And so I did want to give a little background to this conversation. Uh, I wanted to have a conversation about archives with Dean and MK because For a few reasons, I thought that would be one way to get MK to say yes to an event at a law school, um, even in the virtual law school space. Um, It's also been a little over two years since my grandfather, a middle school librarian died. And I really did want to approach one of my projects at the CUNY Law Review um, in a way that would call back to his memory. And I did also in the course of all of our law school studies, I'm sure that we encounter uh, questions of how we preserve and retell our stories and strategies for fighting for freedom, both as um, activists, organizers, and also as lawyers fighting for our clients. And I did draw a lot of inspiration from the critical genealogy framework of abolition feminism now. And I'm just hoping to bring that into a reflection on archives and our social movements. So I think starting with that, it it is important to name that in law school and in organizing, we sometimes uh, try to replicate previous successes or think of them as magic formulas or shortcuts. Um, There is also a very well-founded criticism of lawyers' dependence on analogical reasoning to fight for individual clients' freedoms, especially since our politics demand expansive and system-wide arguments against the institutions keeping our communities unfree. So with all that in mind, all that background about why why I'm interested in talking about archives and and also what I think archives bring to our movement work and to our lawyering work, Uh, I do want to have a conversation about how to approach archives in our social movement work at large. So I'll be going through about six categories of archives and I do want to note that um, there are some big categories that are left out. So, Uh, Those are things we might want to think about asking our guests after this more formal time, but I did try to cover a lot of ground, maybe too much ground. We will see. So I'm going to start with blogs and internet media. I wanted to start here because uh, actually both of your blogs are the first media I remember encountering both of you. And I think that might be true for a lot of people. I might be totally wrong. I might be dating myself, but I think that that feels kind of accurate. Um, So to me, blogs feel uniquely digestible and distributable, especially compared with online platforms these days, uh, which definitely feel like they obscure more content with ads and algorithms. And I think as we can all see from the case study of Twitter, uh, content is honestly just disappearing. Uh, So in that way, blogs also feel slightly more durable than other online media. Uh, And I think something we talked about at our screening of pinkwashing exposed with you last year, Jean, You also mentioned the vulnerability of of websites to co-optation or predation. So I think you mentioned that some Zionists like took deanspade.com and directed it to some pretty disgusting media. I don't honestly remember the details, but uh, so there are ways in which blogs are, and websites are just a little more vulnerable. Um, Given the ways that blogs seem both more enduring and potentially more vulnerable, uh, can you please talk about their role in our social movements? And I did not think about which order
1: for you two to talk, so fight amongst yourselves, please. Okay, Dean, go.
2: You know, I was just thinking while you were saying that, Rachel, that um, I first encountered Miriam's work on through blog, too. So let's think about that. Um, I guess my experience of, I mean, obviously, media has changed so much during the, you know, time since the mid-90s when I started being really active in our movements. Um, That is just something to reflect on on its own, you know, and I think part of what's changed is with the... um, creation of the internet essentially and then its popularization is just that like we could put our word out more easily to a lot of people instantly it doesn't actually mean people see it right like it doesn't doesn't mean that people know to go to those places but there was a kind of um shift like I often think about how in um, 1999 when the battle in Seattle happened before the internet was what it is now so 1999 I was in law school the um I had the kind of internet I had was 10 hours a week shared by my entire household dial up for free. That was like typical, and we never used our 10 hours. Like we never spent 10 hours together. <laughs> we never spent a total of 10 hours on the internet. So you can think about how different that is. And I remember the battle of Seattle happened you know, in WTO and I heard about it on the news. You know what I mean? Like even though I had at times gotten zines from people in Seattle, that's how i learned about like Palestine struggle. That's how i learned a lot of things about like some of the analysis at the time about the role of white people in movements. But like a zine took a while to get to somebody in New York or L.A. or wherever I was, you know, um, and and so it's interesting to think about compared to now, like when we're watching like what's happening in the Atlanta forest and we can all watch it like really like kind of moment to moment or it's different things that happen in 2020. We can watch each other's towns and even even each other's uh, sometimes even very small struggles. Like I can be tracking what a mutual aid project is doing in another city, um, like in kind of Lot of detail and i can try to find out who to ask questions of if i have questions about something cool that i want to you know know how they're doing it um so that's interesting and blogs i think were one of those turning points where like um also I, I when i think about like some of the things i learned from from miriam's blog posts like they could be shorter than a whole zine and they could also often be like taking apart a con- a conversation inside a movement dilemma or inside conflicts or group dynamics. And that's really, really useful. Like when I was thinking, when you were talking in your opening about how sometimes we think we can just like replicate something, um, some some strategy or tactic that's been used elsewhere. Like part of what happens in movements that's hard is that people sometimes adopt really simplistic stories about something that someone else did or is doing. We don't mean to do it. It's not like, you know, ill intention, but we'll just like have only a tiny part of it and that'll circulate. And what we need is actually a lot of nuance. So like, that's why archive is important. That's why historical, you know, so many, so many people's historical work about movements is important um, Is you get to be like, oh, wait, no, what were they actually debating inside there? And like, how, like, what were the turning points in, in some of their strategies? And how did they think it didn't succeed? Even if we see it as a big success, what were they unhappy with? What were they actually going for? Because all of that stuff can be narrated by our opponents sometimes to, um, to make it seem like victory and liberation happened when it didn't, or it can be narrated, inside our movements in a simplistic way like that cuts out part of who was working on it or what um the power dynamics were or why it worked like what the relational dynamics were that made it work that if you missed that you wouldn't be able to really like get the like um really useful lessons from so sometimes i think blog posts have been a place where people have hashed out like it's like you don't have to like have the final thing that you're ready to publish in a zine or a book or make something really like more labor intensive. It's like, oh, I can just be like thinking something through and put this up. And so I think that's been at times, I don't know that that's always how that's used now. I feel like, um, you know, media changes really rapidly in how people use different, um, different forms. But I do think that um, for many years, that was part of how that was helping me was, um, was seeing people's like quick reflection or process or response um, but that was more thoughtful and deep than a tweet, you know. Or, um, you know, had had links throughout it that helped you figure out like where they got some of these ideas or what they were referring to. Let you into maybe a debate that's happening really locally inside a particular formation that you know you're you're going to learn from. Um, yeah, those are my initial thoughts. I'd love to hear what Miriam's thinking.
3: Thank you, Dean, for going first. I appreciate it. <laughs> Um, thanks for having me today. I was thinking, um, much like almost everything in my life, I got into blogging reluctantly. Um, I so I'm. I think contrary to what people now see uh, see me as, I, I'm a luddite. I am somebody who does not really like to take up new technologies. It so happened that I started my blog Prison Culture back in 2010. It was basically based on the suggestion initially and then the constant badgering of a young person I was supporting as he made his way through a court case. And at a certain point in time, because you know, I, I do like to pontificate with people I know, this young person was like, Miss Kay, you need to start a blog. And I was like, I don't, you know, no, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. And he was like, no, you need to write down all your ideas and thoughts because other people are really gonna learn from you. And then you can also uplift the work that you do in that way. And I was like, well, I'm not interested because of the fact that I am a longtime journaler. I've been journaling since I was a small person, um, really young. I think my first journals are uh, like circa 10 years old, you know, and I've continuously journaled my whole life. So I'm like, I don't have any need for a, for a like a public journal. Like this isn't, I'm not interested in that. So I basically was like, no, I'm, I'm not interested. A few, then a few months uh, passed and he was, he came back to me again and he was like, um, it, are you worried about like doing, figuring out how to do it, how to make a blog? And I was like, well, yes, cause I'm, I'm not a technical person. I'm not going to like code to make a blog. Like I didn't even know anything about it. Um, and he's like, I will show you how to do it. It's so easy. You don't have to do anything in terms of like coding and stuff. So he's the first person he actually went ahead and, um, you know, uh, showed me how to go ahead and do that in terms of creating a WordPress blog. And, um, I started blogging and the other thing, I started blogging regularly. I, I I also don't like writing. Writing is really hard for me. It takes a long time. I'm very slow at it. Um, and I, but what, what the option, the, the possibility of blogging did for me is it allowed me to do things like, you know, micro, Like I basically could just put a couple of ideas down and some photos that I had found, or I could reflect on a thing that was happening in real time and just post my ideas about it. Um, And yeah, so what I ended up liking about blogging was that it helped me to clarify what I thought about particular issues. Like it allowed me to basically go back to doing some journaling, but just doing it online. Um, And it also became a space for me to document the work I was doing with others, a kind of like unfiltered medium for that I didn't have to talk to a reporter who would then like, you know, uh, assess and uh, summarize and interpret my, my voice for their piece, which usually never comes out the way you talked about it, Um, I could just post what was going on. If I went to a protest, I can post about the protest. If we were working on a project, I can post about a project. If I wanted to uplift other people's projects, I can post about that. But then over time, what, and I did this for years. um, And then over time, what started coming to me was this concept of like the preservation of a blog depends a lot on labor, uh, on a lot of labor and maintenance. Um, Because blogs are subject to link rot. And that's something I noticed in my blog, like, I would have a blog posted two years later, you would click on links and the links would be gone. Um, And if you don't keep up with paying your hosting fees for your blog, then you'll lose all the content in it because it's held by a third party, like those parts of the fragility of blogging came to me later to start thinking about in a more specific way. And so I've come to think of blogs as being a kind of digital form of scrapbooking. I don't know how many of you ever had your own scrapbook at any point in your life. This may be this is definitely dating me. But um, but there were lots of like scrapbooks are have this really interesting historical um, like a historical uh, line trend line because like Basically, the evolution of how scrapbooks have operated dates back centuries, like since the 15th century, people have been making ways of trying to document their lives. Um, making little ways of being able to figure out places that they like put significant events that happened in their lives together all in one place. And it really kind of the idea of scrapbooking takes off in the 15th century in particular, when people start putting together family Bibles as records of keeping track of what was happening in their lives. And then they had these things called commonplace books that were really popular with upper class people in Europe during the Renaissance period that are some of the ones if you ever go and you ask to look in archives um, and look, you ask for commonplace books, you'll find these beautiful uh, pieces that were created by people in the States in the late nineteenth, in the late 18, uh, 19th century, into the early 20th century, it was a craze of scrapbooking, which Black people participated in in the U.S. Right after emancipation, they started creating a bunch of scrapbooks, and we have some of those in uh, special collections and archives to get, today. And some of those scrapbooks are how we know about things that happen in people's lives, like in real actual time, what was going on for them. So you can think of blogs as kind of the 1990s and 2000s versions of scrapbooks, in my opinion. Um, And that's how I basically started to think of mine as a scrapbook.
1: That is, that's so interesting. Um,
0: It's really interesting that you mentioned journaling, MK, um, because honestly, my, my first context for, not my first context for blogs, but like, a big context for me was definitely live journal and just the practice of like people. It's funny, like, yeah, I think I had a personal live journal and knew plenty of people who did too. But then when I went to college, we had like a, it was like our live journal was our like internal Craigslist, but it was also, I think like, I I don't think there's a way to actually keep them private. And so it is interesting to think about these like individual and communal practices of scrapbooking and journaling that we also then put on the internet and those archives decay. Um, Yeah, websites are, they seem too tricky for me. Yeah, Well,
3: importantly, they decay faster than paper. And I think that's something people don't seem to understand (laughs) is that the text the tech stuff that has been made since that is it's not gonna last. And that, and I think people have the opposite view, which is that they think that everything that's been put online will be there forever. It's already, quote, digitized. It's It might be digitized, it's not preserved. And it's going to, and, and that technologies are much more fragile than actual paper, which is why we have books from like, right? We have books from the 14th and 15th and 16th and 17th century that are in great shape. And then we have books that, are made in the 20th century that have completely dissolved, and the, and it's because paper was made so differently at that time. Paper was made to last, right? In pre 19th century, and paper then became made for uh, capitalist public use, and that paper was trash. And so now, of every paper, think of the paperbacks you have from the 1960s, just in your collection that you happen to pick up. Think, look at how yellowed and and cracking those papers, pieces of paper are. And then go and look at a book from the 17th century and look at how beautiful those pages remain,
2: you know?
0: Yeah. Um,
2: Can I add one thing to this? Yeah. It's just, I'm just thinking about some of the things you were just saying, and just like the, um, the differences, also like the decision points people make about what goes on a blog versus what goes in the zine or the, the other pro- project, like, I'm just thinking about that and, I was, I was making a paper zine with my best friend for, I don't know, a while called Make. Um, and then when we, like, I remember we made a website about it for it in like maybe 1998 or something. And it was, you know, I guess it was a blog, but it was, it was a website. And, and it was like, then we would also put up like just more stuff. You know what I mean? Like more like little entries, not all of which would make it into the paper zine that we would then make sometimes. And just that kind of like process of deciding like what's really important for a lot of people to see. Or, like, what do we think is, like, the most useful contribution right now? Like, I'm thinking about people like you, Miriam, or other people I admire, and, like, what are they, what did they kind of play with first, you know, on a blog or on a live journal or, where, you know, whatever, and then later, like, oh, that became, like, a, a like a, a big project or a through line they made visible in more ways, just, like, an interesting, like, it is, like, a journal or, like, a notebook or something in a way, you know, as a, um, like as a space of play. And I'm also just thinking right now about how much more I used to write. Like, like I think there's like some dynamics around like be, like organizing and around having more and more responsibility and more projects the longer you do this stuff and how like what f- for me what falls out is um, is time to do that kind of like just more amusing, more like later like writing instead of like, oh, I've got a deadline and I have to do this or I'm doing all these other things that don't involve like having contemplative writing time.
3: Yes, and I, I'm i so with you on that about the musing. I love that word because that's what I think I use that word a lot. Because musing reminds you of what it used to feel like to go to a library that had actual books in it. And you didn't know, you didn't have a cat, card catalog. I mean, you had a card catalog, but you didn't have the computer to, to turn out the book that you immediately wanted. So you had to go to the, um, to the actual stacks. Remember this? You have to go to the actual stacks and you to look through every single thing in the 360 number to get that one book. Or, but you discovered all these other books as a result of that. Right, like just from the musing and the cut and that's how I felt for me, at least about blogs and blogging. Um, it felt like the, the thing I do in my journal, which is like muse, like literally walk through the stacks, exploring in my brain different things that may not seem connected at first, when you go back and look at it again, then you made connections because you didn't know what you thought until you wrote it down. Um, And again, not writing for writing, but just like literally writing for exploring, writing for musing, writing for uh, getting shit down like a brain dump, you know? Um, So yeah, so I'm so with you on that. And I think it's so important um, and I can't, and I don't have time for that anymore on a public way um, because also writing becomes a different kind of writing when you're writing books. And you're writing essays for people that need you to write in a concise way and make an argument. Like you didn't have to make it, you don't have to make an argument
2: in your blog post, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think also the internet changed a lot. I just want to say too, like there was, uh, there, it's just like a lot harsher out there now. So like musing is not very safe. Like, you know what I mean? Like playing with an idea. Like I remember the experience of writing things on the make scene blog and being like, you know, have people be like, oh yeah, I disagree. Like having really good exchanges and like learning through people disagreeing instead of it being like, um, a, like a takedown culture. I just want to name that. Like, I think it's harder to muse in the contemporary, like whatever heightened, like everything weaponized kind of space. I
3: agree. I think it definitely is. And I also think uh, when your profile changes because of your public online-ness, um, it also becomes impossible for you to muse in public again that way um it just doesn't it doesn't work in the same way interestingly enough the very thing that you were doing in the shadows becomes a thing that becomes public and then when it's public you can no longer be musing <laughs> in public you know so it's like it's kind of turned around on you in a weird way so yeah
1: Um. Thank, thank you both so much for those answers. I feel like they're,
0: they're giving me a lot to think about in terms of libraries in general. Um, And I think we can definitely, I think a question we might want to think about now and save to answer for later is like, what are the solutions to preserving both our internet media and the other media we'll talk about shortly. Um, I think I I know, MK, you just talked about like how amazing of an experience it is to get lost in the stacks of maybe not get lost, but I will say I, I worked in my undergrad library for the entire time I was at college and learned so much just by like I think I was like an interlibrary loan assistant and also did some like inventory and page work and then uh, was also a reference assistant. So I saw like way more subjects than I would ever see if I were just in my little like chemistry, physics, major bubble. And it is wild how you just like happen upon all these different things. Um, But yeah, I think a question to think about for later is like, I am curious about, we have like this, you know, government preservation through the Library of Congress, but we also have other, more grassroots community-based ways of saving all our stuff. And so, yeah, that's a question I'm gonna ask at the end. But in the meantime, I'm gonna uh, transition to zines, which I know you both talked about a little bit in in our first segment of conversation. But um, yeah, so this category does feel way too expansive to ask you to talk about in a short amount of time. Um, but zines, as both of you mentioned, have been pivotal to a lot of organizing, including organizing for criminalized survivors and people in prison that I think we have in common. Zines are also one of the most easily distributable and accessed medium for political education that I can think of. I know Dean did mention like back in the day it would take a while for a zine to make it to somebody, and I think that is I mean that's still the case. Um, people do you know order paper copies to be delivered to them, but we do also print them, mass print them and distribute them in lots of different ways. And I think in that way, people who aren't necessarily looking for them might encounter them more than other kinds of political education.
1: Um,
0: I think at, at this point, they're also really important because they are, they do propagate both digitally and in print. Um, and MKU also somewhat recently started a micropress with Netta Bomani, uh, Sojourners for Press. Because of how important zines are, um, so I'm just hoping you can both talk about how zines have influenced or furthered your organizing and what a special place they hold in recounting our social movement struggles and why why they're an important medium. And MK, I'm gonna pass it to you first.
3: Sure. Um, yeah, I love zines. Um, I've been a zine and a zine maker since I was a teenager. Um, And that practice has essentially continued into my late middle age with modifications, of course. Um, Before, I used to create zines using photocopiers. um, And even before that, mimeograph machines um, and scissors at my dad's office. Um, And I moved on to collaborating with artists and designers now to create beautiful and I hope kind of engaging publications, um, which maybe some people consider more art book than actual zine, but we don't have to get into that argument. Um, But yeah, I hold on to a zinester spirit in my work. Um, I think, uh, you know, according to some, there's been writing and kind of a lot of theorizing about zine and zine culture and zine making in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, Um, and, some people think about zines as, can, as being able to be understood as a community archive of sort. Um, and I think that makes some sense um, in the way that community archives are supposed to be coming from people who are marginalized in communities setting up their own spaces to document and um, to uh, share pieces of their lives. Um, I think you can think of zines in that way often. Um, I would also suggest that zines can be mini exhibits that include archival materials and visual art and text and anything else that you want to assemble. So a lot about assemblage um, in zines and zine making that I think is interesting Um, for me. I think zines have become an example of, uh, I'm a collector, I collect a lot of different kinds of things and they've been an example of me turning my collections into publicly accessible archives basically um, through the making of various kinds of zines. Um, You can also like, the things I love about zines um, and always have has been like the tactile nature of them. Um, the fact that you can independently produce them with little to no money, um, that, uh, you know, you can hold the results of your collaboration in your hands and maybe you read it and then you hopefully pass it on to someone else who you think might want to read it. Like they're not meant to be precious things. Um, they're meant to be shared. Um, and, uh, I think now that you can also make digital versions, it's just a new wider audience that can access it and you can make it possible for them to download it and create hard copies for themselves as well in a way that might enhance uh, the, the dissemination and circulation of what you created. And ultimately, I think for me, making zines has been about trying to make histories relevant um to and to insert particular ones into the current conversations that i'm having and into the current organizing communities that i'm part of and i'll speak more to this when we talk more about study guides and popular and political education because i think that zines uh, are a form of public history and or can be a form of public history um and they can also be vehicles of intergenerational storytelling and uh, their ways of sharing knowledge across time and space. And I think you gotta use all of the opportunities to do that in various kinds of ways, particularly if you are um, if you are embedded in social movements, right? I mean, one of the big things that I got when I was growing up into these spaces um, in my teenage years is I got the benefit of um, being in spaces with people who were much older than I was. And in those times you would, talk to people and therefore you had people that you can hear from about the stories of things they went through. They told you stories um, and you were kind of learning from the relationship building of the, being in those spaces with those folks. Something I've noticed over the years is how how so many of our movement spaces lack intergenerational um, lack an opportunity for people to really be like tell stories intergenerationally part of what happened and I'll, I'll I'll be brief and then let Dean jump in here but part of what ended up happening um I came when I moved back to New York I moved back like I was trying to like not be having to do like create any more containers for work I did not I, I, I was telling everybody i'm like i'm not starting anything, no more new projects i'm not you know what I mean projects, yes, like my own individual projects, but like collective collective projects, organization groups i wasn't i didn't want to do that for lots of different kinds of reasons, right mainly because i've been doing it for so long since I was a teenager, and I was like i 'm tired and i want to I want to work on other things, my things like i'm in my third season of life, I have a different you know, but what ended up happening is I moved back home to New York, and a bunch of young people. Would constantly ask me, how can we be part of the work you do? How do we, you know, I, what do you like? I want to, you know, like these things don't have, we don't have this here. Like, where are we going to do it? How do we make our own things? How do we, you know, and I just kept getting those questions over and over again from various people, many whom I didn't know, but quote, knew me through social, right? And they knew I'd moved back to New York and they were here in New York. And that's how s and New York came. Like when I asked the people at s and what I said when I left, I was like, there will be no affiliate of s and in New York City because I am tired and we're not doing it. It's just too much, you know? Um, but anyway, I say all that to say that I used to be able to, and you, you've, you've seen this too, Rachel, like within our spaces, like there are not that many older people, like over the age of 50 spending time with 20-year-olds, you know? And that's there's a lot of real reasons for that, among which is capitalism's the late stage capitalism ravaging of people's lives so that you can't actually hold on and do this kind of organizing work while you're trying to raise your family. And like, think about your retirement and now caring for your parent, your elderly parent alongside like, who has time to also then be doing mentorship of younger organizers while you're doing all that right. Um, like it hasn't made it possible for us. It's actually made it really hard for us to stay in this work for a long time, because it's work that's usually uncompensated. It is, you know, you, you it's a lot. I'm telling you, it's a lot to hold together. So I think I think of zines now as like a way for me to do some intergenerational storytelling work with young people I'm never going to get into contact with, but I'm I feel still tied in the movement, the larger social movements of abolitionist struggle, politics, all the other stuff that I care deeply about has been the case. And then the last thing I just wanna say about this is my my folks who are locked up, both family members and other loved ones, tell me regularly of how important zines are to them, how important it is to the communities they're forming on the inside, to their own continued political education. You know, uh, my comrade Stevie Wilson, for example, um, who's been locked up for many years um, and was recently infuriatingly denied parole has spoken and written publicly a lot about how uh, important zines are to him and his fellow incarcerated comrades and I'm just going to put in the chat and this is something maybe you can use if you want to uh, uh, I'm not going to go through it but his uh, uh, a um, a twitter thread that he did about what zines mean to folks on the inside and why really zines are more important in many ways than books uh, because they can get in in a different way they can be distributed internally you can still use photocopiers sometimes in the library that allow you to like, print out lots of copies of it and share it for like just, just the whole kind of thing about the zine niche. and the kind of information that gets put into zines is also different than the information that gets put into books like all that stuff so that's a long way of saying to me zines are incredibly important as a medium for communication They're important as a space for potentially being able to disseminate and create new ideas. And they're really important for a way to be able to share historical information um, with others in each other. Um, So those are things I think about.
2: Can you just tell us what your first zines were about?
3: Yeah, Um, I started making zines when I, I think I made my first zine when I was about 15 years old. I think probably I would say, And that was about um, actually Michael Stewart's murder um, here in New York. Um, Michael Stewart, when I was 12, Michael Stewart was killed. And that was the thing that activated me around um, kind of the violence of the state. Um, And it it propelled me forward. It was the first protest I ever attended on my own. It was technically not on my own because my older siblings went and I just tagged along after them and they pretended they didn't know me, but I was there kind of by myself. Um, and um, I uh, wrote a, a piece that was um, some sort of a kind of rant about um, making a connection between another killing that had just happened and the Michael Stewart case. I was trying to show people in my 15-year-old way that this was a continuity. That's how far I could go. It was like three years back at that time, and um, and I that's as much history as I had about police violence. Um, So I was already trying to make those historical connections at that age in a very sloppy way. And then I would also, I did a bunch of zines about uh, music because I was obsessed with music. Um, I did uh, zines about dance because I was a dancer. Um, And so I I made a a zine about um, some black ballerinas. Um, (laughs) I mean, I did a whole bunch of different kinds of zines. And then when I got older, in my 20s, I started making a zine called Adventures in Youth Work, which... Interestingly enough, I don't have any of those, I don't have copies of any of my zines. I never kept anything, and I say this all the time, a lot of the work I did as a teenager, it wasn't until my mid-20s that I became a collector of stuff, my own stuff and other people's stuff, uh, because I I didn't realize at the time, I didn't have a a, a sense of, um, of preservation at that time. I just was doing them and sharing them, and there were these great um, places where you there were actual magazines that existed that would be uh, zine distro magazines that you would put ads in and you would let people know that you had it and then that they could for free if they sent a, a self addressed envelope in a in an envelope that you would send them a copy of your zine um, and just for the co- sometimes you would just say for the cost of postage you know put a dollar into this like it was fun it was fun it was a good way of communicating with people I never would have met any other way. Um, You know, getting a a letter from some random person in Portland who was like, yes, send me a copy of Adventures in Youth Work. That was so fun to me, you know, and it turns out I didn't know this, but some of my Adventures for Youth Work zines are at uh, Portland uh, Zine Distro that had a, that's how I found some copies of my old stuff was through them, but somebody had just given it away. I don't think they knew anything about me or, you know, knew whatever. Um, Many of my zines i would never signed with my name so they're anonymous and most of that was true that's most of the things I made I never put my name on um, for the longest time until I was like frankly in my late 30s Um, so yeah I loved it thank you for asking
2: it's so fun to think about it's fun to think back about about that time and how we shared ideas I'm I was thinking about what you said earlier about how it's so different than talking to a journalist or like like I think so much of my experience of making zines the very beginning like in the mid 90s for me was like I felt really like I didn't think I would ever write anything anyone would ever publish I wasn't I you know i like like I grew up working class my you know my mom didn't go to high school like I just was like I didn't you know I was I was going to school and stuff but I didn't see myself as like I saw that my classmates had like a kind of like Sophistication, and I just like knew I didn't have any. Like I couldn't go get a PhD. I couldn't like, you know, like I wasn't going to become somebody like that. And so I was. So the idea that you could just write anything down, and then publish it yourself with your friends, like my all my zines, my first zines were all collaborative with my close friends and and you know in activist groups and stuff. And like this sense that like with like a lot of what we were writing about was stuff we would never see anywhere else. And then the things I was learning from zines, like like I was saying, I like the first time I, I remember like I read this zine about um Palestine and like I just don't think I would have run across that anywhere except for a zine you know or like stuff people were writing I remember like one of my friends wrote in one of our early zines all about like she was it was a period where like Indo chic was in and there was all this like gross stuff happening where people were using like fabrics and all these things from India and like put it you know like white women wearing bindis and all this shit and she was Indian and wrote about like what that was like from
1: her perspective. And it was just like, you know.
3: All right. Dean said that um, he may be kicked off on his internet. That may have happened just now.
1: Yeah. So,
3: well, just, oh, there he is. He's back.
2: I don't know why he keeps cutting me off, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, just like, and then obviously then I you know, wrote a lot of zines uh, and, and blog posts as well at the time about trans stuff. And it was like, what was out there about trans stuff was so limited and it was um, these really medicalized narratives were like some of the only things and the like, very few trans books that had been published like so much of it was stuff that like me and my friends couldn't relate to at all and it was didn't have an um, anti-racist politics and didn't have an anti-capitalist politics you know like we just could not see ourselves in what was available um, which was very very limited. And so it was like huge to do all that through zines and the whole world existed only through like those zines and blogs that like that weren't, um, that you couldn't find elsewhere. I can't tell you how like, and, and even in just like it's basic like life-saving stuff about like how to, you know, how to deal with your job, how to deal with your your doctor, like what, you know, even things like what lies to tell to get what you need, like just like stuff that like you're not, that's not going to come out in a book or like in a mainstream article. And it's just that kind of like, um, people getting by through through being able to. But what I remembering when I, when you were talking, Mary, was just the freedom I felt. I remember, and it, we used the word rants. We often use the word rants to talk about what what, what our zine pieces were, were. It Was like we were just gonna like say what we really thought, and it wasn't like kind of writing you'd have to do if you were like gonna try to get an article published in a newspaper or or a school newspaper or a, you know or write something for a class. It was like you could just say what you really thought and be really like. Um, you know, openly political and that um, now there's so many places to do that online that it's, you know, it's we're kind of flooded and, you know, and, and I think with zines, it's true, like most people you you write this thing and you had no idea if anyone was ever going to see it. You know, you could if you're organized, you could put it into one of the zine, distro magazines, but, if you, you know, it might just be that you, like, made 30 copies and, like, stuck them inside the weekly paper um, in a paper box or, like, it might be that you, like, brought them to an event or they were an, inter- it was often an intervention for us. Like we were, we would give them out at certain protests because we we're trying to be like, we, we want this narrative to.
1: All right, about my tech problems. Anyway, um, yeah, very fun to talk to you all about this.
0: So I think that that's, I think that's a good transition uh, thinking about the freedom to, like, curate content and and rant about things that are happening. Um, I think that's a good transition to our next topic, which is podcasts. Um, It might not be the best transition, who knows, but you have both appeared on a ton of podcasts. Um, Like the one that we're technically recording right now, Many podcasts provide an opportunity to reflect both on big and important themes, Uh, they can also survey and dissect discrete projects, I think we're doing kind of both of those things right now. Podcasts can also break down complex academic ideas and resources or collect experiences from people with shared identities. I think audio conversations are also important, not only to distill big ideas or stories in ways that people can absorb, but they also frequently are or act as oral history projects. Given that you've both engaged in so many different recorded conversations, uh, which I think at this point in the pandemic includes like a ton of webinars, um, can you please reflect on the importance of, I would say, recorded audio conversations or podcasts um, on their importance
1: to our social movements. And I don't know who's going to go first for this one. Sorry,
2: sorry. Start, start. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I really enjoy podcasts. I, they're, they require an enormous amount of like technical know-how. So I think that that's like always worth naming. I think that that labor might be invisible to some people. If it like, um, yeah, like I think it's uh, it's intense what it takes to put on a podcast or a webinar and to, and, and to have it be high quality enough that people can really hear it um, or see it if that's relevant and that, you know, like I, and like people know it's happening. I think it's just a, um, and then make sure if you're doing a webinar that it has the right kinds of, you know, language interpretation um, captioning like it's just like, it's, I just want to name that that stuff is actually pretty intense and um, and so there is a world of podcasting that's very professionalized, and I just want to name that as well like that's a, sort of different from some of the zine stuff that we're talking about just each of these each of these things has different like pros and cons in terms of reach in terms of um, different access needs um, and um, and in terms of kind of like who can who can do it successfully depending on you know, resources to some degree, I and mean, some people manage to figure out that stuff on the cheap, but a lot of, um, it is a lot of the highly produced sounding stuff, it's actually produced, you know, um, I enjoy, um, the podcast a lot, and I think I'll, I agree with you, I appreciate that point that, like, especially once the pandemic started, a lot of things that would have been live events moves to, um, webinars or online events, and that's been amazing because of more people being able to access it in lots of different ways, um, uh, and, uh, I, um, I think that that, I mean, I think that that really has changed some of the conversations, like, especially the moment of the uprising 2020 and the pandemic, um, and the kinds of ways that, um, the ideas about abolition have, um, mainstreamed and a level of access people have to like deep thoughtful conversations, um, with people who tried a lot of stuff from a lot of different places like that is really helping our movements. And of course Miriam has um, and Andrew Ritchie and everybody interrupting criminalization have made a lot of that happen. Um, kind of maybe more than anyone else. Um but I you know facilitated that kind of strategy sharing. Um so yeah I think that's been really really useful and um and I also just want to name that I think that there's a um a level of overwhelm by the amount of amazing content there is right now and something I really worry about for people in our um, communities is like how to make sure there's enough time for contemplation like in for solitude where you're not taking in others ideas but where you're also like digesting your own experiences emotions ideas and I just like I've been you know increasingly like reading about the research around that about the fact that people are like taking something in at all times like when you're riding the bus when you're walking to work when you're doing the dishes you know like people are always taking in information um, for some people like music and other things that might have a more contemplative element but I do want for myself one of my questions I've noticed I go through periods where I become it feels like kind of addicted to information and I need to be like no I'm going to take some of these walks throughout my day you know to do my errands or go to the doctor or whatever and not or walk to work and not listening to something and like the value of like science silence um, in our lives so I just say that because not because the podcasts and webinars aren't completely wonderful and so useful, but I think we all have to also figure out how to be like human animals with all of this technology available that can, and I also just like, I don't want people to think that they have to be like, to know everything in order to act. I think that, that can also be a feeling that the internet culture provides. Like if I haven't researched and read and thought of everything, then someone's going to call me out if I make any kind of um, Intervention or to try to take action in my community or try to say something at an event where I think something's off or whatever. So I just like, just like wonder if we can um, both like enjoy the abundance of communication that's available to us and uh, like not create standards of perfection and find enough space to like digest, and, and you know, our experiences. And I think there can be like a grasping for information because we're all so scared about the conditions that are happening. And it's like maybe there's more time experiencing that things are scary and hard and comforting each other and caring for each other and not just trying to like think our way out of it you know what I mean Um, at the same time there's the flip side which is that podcasts are really great because they can be a lot deeper than some of the analysis that people are getting when they're just reading tweets or reading memes um, and missing some of the like um you know complexity of uh, a lot of the analysis so I think that's a super happy that there's like these deeper and longer form projects out there
3: yeah, I mean, I did everything Dean has to say, and I and I don't have much to add beyond that, but except to say that for my end, the thing that's useful about podcasts is that the best ones are conversations, and oftentimes, if you're in a podcast conversation with an excellent, uh, for you know, uh, fellow conversationalist, sometimes you discover things yourself as you are talking, which is what I appreciate about them. Um, I also appreciate that many people actually post what you said. um, (laughs) For good or for bad, it wasn't necessarily edited, you know, in some weird, interesting way. Um, And I'm talking here about people who do this kind of like grassroots podcasty things, you know, Um, like you, your full interview will be on there, even if it's two hours. (laughs) Um, Not the, not the the shortened version of it. Um, and I like that. I like the rawness of that. I like the, um, I like the, you know, DIY ish kind of aspect of that. Again, going back to my deep love of zines. Um, and I think that those are, those are things that I think are so important. And I agree with Dean that the, the information overwhelm is so real. And, and, and I always like to say, um, there was so much I didn't have when I was coming up as a young person uh, trying to figure out my way in the world around how to make a difference in that world, that I just look back at so much. I think about this particularly with transformative justice work, like we did not have anything in terms of direction from people who could help us directly like literally we were like making it up with our peers along the way if you were lucky to have peers you were able to find in community that were also doing what you were doing which was very rare you know who was writing who's doing ca processes there were like seven other people that were that you could know of and, and you weren't in touch with like you know five of those people you had two if you were lucky with you that stuff Um, I remember sitting with my friend Shira Hassan many years ago, at a certain point in time, and Shira just turned to me and she said, nothing's written down. Like, (laughs) nothing's written down. Everything is in our heads and in other people's heads. And that's going to be a problem because there will be a time when more people will want to also engage. And we can't just have them also then having, having had nothing to rely on to start all over again in a, you know, it just it, it, this isn't a way for this isn't the way for a movement to actually emerge and grow healthily. It doesn't mean that what we write is the law or has to be the thing that everybody but there has to be something that you can throw your thing against your ball against that you kind of can have a conversation alongside And to me those podcasts. Or can be those like the thing you throw your thing against, which is like, you can listen to Dean or me talk about something and you can be like, this is so ridiculous. It makes no sense. And and then you develop the thing that you think makes sense in, re- in respect to having heard us talk about something that you were like, absolutely not, this does not apply to me. But if you don't have any of that, then you don't know what, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you think about a thing until, oftentimes somebody and this is why the idea in sociology and i, I will only quote sociology once because I, I you know i i don't like to to know to be able to know that i'm actually a sociologist but one of the things is this idea of the looking glass self that you we as human beings we only know who we are in 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 um in relation to another and to another not just another You know, because we look at their thing and we're like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be that. But rather what they reflect back to you about yourself has a huge impact in who you become. I really believe this. And so I think it's the same about ideas. It's a looking glass self idea. You have this, you have a notion maybe of something. You look, you see it reflected back to you. You take it in or you don't. But you have something to basically vibe with. And to me, that's what podcasts can do. They can be helpful things for you to vibe with into developing your own ideas and your own way of doing things and your own way of being. But often we don't know what we don't know. And you need you need something to help you know what you don't know, you know.
1: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, all of what you both just said. Um, and I'm definitely
0: sitting with. I do think of all the categories of things we're talking about that podcasts are one of the easiest to like overload yourself with information on and in particular I'm thinking about what Dean said about like I am pretty much constantly listening to podcasts when I'm not in the house and that yeah that definitely creates in some ways I think it's it's good cuz I have like more visceral associations of where I've like learned information and taken in and thought about different ideas because I'm like pretty much always moving when I'm listening to podcasts and in some ways I think there is it's it's nice to confine your your time to to take information in at least temporally if not also spatially but I think that maybe this thought is a good transition to another medium, which I think is pretty hard to to consume while you're on the go. Um, So I did wanna talk about films, which both of you have had a lot of experience with in different ways. Um, Films and videos are so important in similar ways to podcasts and other media that we've talked about to storytelling and political education. They can be longer surveys of events and big community work or more short digestible explainers of theory or even just personal or collective political manifestos. Like some of the media that we are discussing today, they can be consumed by oneself in isolation or in community with other people. Um, I've chosen videos you two have played a part in producing in the the resources that I sent around, um, but I've also learned a lot from videos made by other people that you've fared with people in the past. Um, can you please talk about the importance of videos and how they convey important ideas to preserve a record of our movement organizing? And I think
2: I'll pose this one to Dean first. Yeah, I was thinking, we didn't say this on podcast, but, you know, a lot of people don't read. So, like, a really big, you know, for good reasons, you know, like, there's many, many reasons people don't like to read. Um, or, and I think a lot of, I hear a lot of people reporting that they feel like they can't read um, long-form things anymore because of the ways the internet has changed their attention spans. So whether that's good or bad or whatever, but that's how it is. Um, People need lots of charismatic ways to engage ideas and I I think you know my life is about like I actually think my life purpose is to like share transformative radical ideas grounded in collaborative practice like that's what I would say is my life purpose and so like if I'm trying to like help make sure that as many people as possible know as many things as possible might be liberating for them you know, and I'm sharing those ideas around. It's like, well, what are the ways people are going to enjoy that? Are they going to enjoy, you know, just as many ways as possible. I think that I see that in Miriam's work and in mine, just like, you know, what what can I figure out? And I, I love collaborating with visual artists, video makers, and other visual artists, because that's not a gift I have. And so it's like, oh, like that's people, you know, and thinking right now about Miriam's, you know, work on children's books. We just, just, like, we want this stuff everywhere that can be in um, and as um, engaging to different parts of people's emotional and intellectual and spiritual and political selves as possible so that ideally we're trying to like break the I'm not myself mean, I'm trying to break the spells that I think demobilize us and help more and more people feel like they can be part of something with others to
1: make the world a available to be and help. about that just that it's not out of
2: reach you know um i think that's the um the, the hope of, of spreading this stuff so I, I mean videos and films are like especially like things like pink washing exposed or or that video i made the mutual aid explainer with my friend Cito, those are like very labor intensive like those take it took years to make and they're really hard to make without any money which is how i made those um you know, um, as opposed to, like, when, you know, I do a lot of events, as as Miriam has also with uh, the Barnard Center Research on Women, um, those events, that's when we, like, you know, we just, when we we record an existing conversation we're having, that still takes a lot of work, but it's not the same as, like, when someone's animating a video, or when someone's, um, you know, like, editing in a really complex way um, a video, Um, but those, (laughs)
3: Hi, <laughs> Dean. You're back. Are you I'm done? back
2: <laughs> um did, did you all hear the last part? I said I came back for a little while and spoke and then I went away again. I think so, okay, anyway, I have no idea what happened, but um but yeah, I mean i I would just say like I think that um the main two parts are the parts about the how charismatic film and video are, and I think also like like with pink washing exposed like having you to see be able to see a story like we we made that movie because you pinkwashing was this major tactic being used by Israel but also being used by the U.S. and by oil companies and by all kinds of our opponents and if you wanted to learn about pinkwashing you had to read something like there was stuff out there written about it but there was like there wasn't something easier and to have a pink, a movie about pinkwashing that then people can have events free screenings and like do it in their community people are still doing that Are still screening that movie 10 years later just to like have a way to get together a bunch of people and talk about basically anti-Zionism, talk about it's a, it's a way to have a free queer event that lines up radical politics with queer community building. Like just having these kinds of tools that um, that are event-oriented I think are really, really useful to have like kind of an entertainment piece. Um, and, and having a
1: concept like pinkwashing, that's I think a little bit Okay, That's the last sentence. Yeah, the last... Okay, go ahead.
2: Just that uh, that having a, a concept of, like think watching it's hard for people to comprehend told through a story of activists doing a fight instead of just an abstract, like sort of theoretical um, description of it, I think is, uh, is useful for people to like wrap their heads around it.
3: Thanks, Dean. Um, I was reflecting on a couple of things that you mentioned. First, I really like, um, I really like how you uh, talked about uh, kind of what you do, like uh, kind of a, a, um, how you see yourself in the in the midst of all of these things that you make um, and and kind of share over time. And I similarly, I think of my purpose in in life as creating. Like creating offerings basically to tap into the creativity and the insights and the wisdom of my communities while consistently trying to extend invitations for collaboration and collective action. Like, that's kind of the way that I you know, when everybody sees the different kinds of things I do, they don't maybe see them as connected to each other, but to me, they're absolutely connected. They're all part of the same larger project, you know? Uh, and if I'm making a container for collective action that other people can join in, that is that is part, you know, all of the other things that I'm doing are in service of that, um, that goal. Um, and so for film, as Dean mentioned, you know, I think it's really important to say that yes, a lot of people don't read and a lot of people don't like reading and a lot of people can't read. And that's also a social uh, location and a social, a structural issue. Um, And uh, for those who uh, don't like to read, there are lots of reasons for why they don't like to read. Um, And we also have, a, and it has to be said, we have a profoundly anti-intellectual culture um, in the U.S. in particular, where intellectual ideas uh, and a world of ideas is also uh, is for some groups, um, and I think some of it is a protective thing, and some of it is really warranted, <laughs> is seen as um, uh, kind of an elite, an elite um, affectation or an elite thing that, you know, people that are hoity toity do or whatever. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of like, you know, you shouldn't expect that people should read books, kind of feeling of stuff. And I I understand where some of that comes from. And I think that's ludicrous. You should read books if you can. And if you have access to books, and we should make access to books possible for absolutely everybody. And we should help everybody who wants to learn how to read read well. And we should engage the written world word because it's good. Okay, like, because it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to have. It's a good thing to be able to critique the world in which you live in. And to do that through other people's words can be really edifying and useful and beautiful, you know, like, all those things are true at once. And, and yes, it's also elitist sometimes. And it's, but that's like life, get over yourselves, you know, so, so I don't want to, I want to, I want to say that to say that, and, Because we're in that world where we have an anti intellectual bent because for many different real reasons people can't access certain kinds of ways of of sharing information or information um, seeking and and knowledge, we have to be creating different platforms and different ways for people to engage information and knowledge. Video and film is one way, just like podcasts, just like zines, just like all the other stuff. But what I appreciate often about film is the visual medium, the ability to have a language that isn't words, an ability to tell a story through just you know the photographs the images the you know that that is a different kind of language that should also be privileged and be allowed and people should be able to deal with it. you know just like listening is its own sense for some people who can hear in that kind of way but if you can't hear you can still sometimes read the transcripts and if you can't read the transcripts then maybe there are other ways that we can make information we should use all means that we can disseminate and share information that's possible. So film has been that for me. Um, I've, I've, uh, I collaborated with Dean on making some videos with the BCRW, Barnard Center for Research on Women, um, based on our Building Accountable Communities gathering that I organized back in 2019. And then we kind of chopped up a bunch of the interviews we were able to do there to create a series of videos. And that idea came from many years before then when I was talking with Dean and, and, and with Hope I think at a cafe, I think you were there, you came into the city, we talked about like ways that we could collaborate together. And this video project came into idea, uh, you know, it was like, maybe we should make a bunch of videos about TJ stuff, you know, and that's how that came into being. Um, I've collaborated a lot with my friend, uh, Tom Callahan, who's a a wonderful filmmaker. Um, And Tom and I have created a series of videos that document particular social movement, Related stuff uh, that we were, sh- uh, Tom lives in Chicago and I lived there for many years. And so we made, you know, as part of our Reparations Now campaign, we made a, a short video as a way to encourage people to join the reparations fight. We created a video based on our Buy Anita campaign to uplift that campaign so we, more people could say goodbye to Anita Alvarez, who is the state's attorney over there. We made a video about um, Rakia Boyd um, uh, it was murder because, um, we were trying to get people to, uh, join us as we were trying to push the, um, the police board to fire Dante servant, who was the police officer who, uh, killed Rakia Boyd. And in an intentional way of moving beyond the push that people were trying to make, including the family, which we understood that they were trying to get him, uh, 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 indicted and then they wanted him tried and then they wanted him jailed. Many of us were not as abolitionists. That wasn't that's not our that wasn't our ministry. But we did think he shouldn't be on the force <laughs> to kill more people, right? That that's an abolitionist intervention. Fire the hell out of that person and take away his pension. You know, like those were things that we could get behind in support of the family. So we made a video showing that fight. Um, just things like that, which it's like, we use those kind of visual film-like things to like encourage more people to come in, encourage more people to be part of it. And it did, it brought people to us, you know, because it was like, oh, these people are doing this stuff. I, I can plug in here. I feel like I can see the work in a way that I couldn't maybe see the work before. And now I know I can actually, you know, come and, and join you and, and do more and struggle. I continue to find ways to, you know, after during 2020, we created a video with a, a blue, um, blue Seat um, Studios uh, that was our defund video, um, uh, a defund police video. It, it was an animated short and it was out of deep frustration with how people kept saying they couldn't wrap their brains around the concept of defunding police, right? I was like, really? A child's can. And so <laughs> when Blue Seat reached out to me after that, they're like, we can make a, a animated video. And I was like, let's make an animated video that shows that actually a 10 year old understands defund, right? Like, so always trying to find ways to communicate with people in ways that make it more accessible and, and also encourage them to join us, encourage them to take part, to be part of this. I don't want to make films that are about people, uh, looking at the work we're doing in a voyeuristic and a consumptive spectacle-like way. I want people to be drawn into the fight with us and everything that I make and, and movies are no different.
0: I think you both raise a lot of good points about um, <clears throat> the the purpose of film and video and also, the accessibility, um, which, which I guess was sort of the framework that I tried to bring to this. But I it did occur to me um, in thinking about our next categories, um, one, one thing that I left out was visual notes, which I think is a really good um, medium to think about in terms of maybe a bridge between films and like animated or visual media, but something sort of uh, trying to record the the big themes in maybe a conversation or webinar um, in a way that actually works for people who like can't or don't want to, or don't have the time to read, um, but definitely agree that we need to, I think, try to convey these ideas in as many different ways as possible. But that is kind of my little segue into talking about syllabi and study guides. So uh, you're both educators who have made collective study a big part of your political practice. Um, I remember seeing both of you post syllabi for formal classes you've taught or essential reading lists and even event or movement inspired collections of resources which I would definitely call syllabi. Um, I believe most of your nonfiction books have associated study guides and I think some of them are kind of what I talked about a little more visual um, definitely like breaking down the ideas in visual ways um, but they also collect tons of sources for further study through like bibliographies or whatever they're technically called. Um, Can each of you speak to the importance of curating lists of resources for formal and self-education, especially in the current, but not particularly new or unique climate of censorship, like what we're seeing um, in uh, Florida in particular, but lots of places all over. Um, Some people have suggested that political stunts to censor black feminists and queer theorists
1: will only increase people's acquaintance with them. And maybe let's start with MK but yeah. If if you need to take a minute we can start with Dean. Um Dean do you want to start? No. <laughs> I will if you want me
2: to do you you want a moment yeah yeah I guess
3: with water so yeah
2: totally this question just makes me think about um I guess one the the political climate of censorship is important but I think also the political climate of co-optation is really like where in my mind went with this question because part of what happens when we have you know explosive social movement moments is then our opposition and people who don't know if they're part of our opposition but just have like bad liberal ideas put out a bunch of nonsense that's like says it's going to answer or refer to or explain what's needed in the face of the crises that have been made more visible by the social movement you know the moment of uprising the insurrection and so there's always just a lot of like not great stuff that's that's out there saying it's addressing whatever the topic is that's likely easier to find than the actual radical stuff because it's like any published by corporate presses or it's got government money behind it or it's got people who already have a big platform so I think part of the role I've experienced of like social movement study groups and syllabi is like getting to make sure we find um like texts or resources that um, we might not have found that give a deeper, broader context, more history, or that give a more radical view, or that you hear from people impacted by the issue who are not going to be heard from um, in like whatever those mainstream accounts are. And the most obvious example of this is that when we have these moments over the last many years where there's you know greater attention to the violence of the criminal punishment system, you know when that's like 2016, like Brown being killed, or all these other explosive moments, you just instantly get a bunch of. Stuff put out there by like um you know liberals and reformers, and you might never get the abolitionist take if you if you don't if someone doesn't help you find that set of books, podcasts, scenes, websites, um whatever, films. And so I think that's part of it. And I also just like I love seeing what people read together. You know, there's there there is a lot out there, and and um, and there's just so much that all of us don't know about. There's like, so many histories and so many places and times that I don't know about. So getting to see or how did somebody else like. Why is someone else telling this story next to this story? And and what I'm always looking for, you know, I teach um, primarily law students at a, at a not elite, a very not elite school, and people um, have a variety of levels of reading comprehension, and um, and I'm often just looking for like short, charismatic things full of examples. Um, like I really am thinking right now about how I've really enjoyed this book, Remaking Radicalism, that is an anthology that came out a few years ago, and what's great about that book is that it covers lots of different movement moments. Um, maybe it spans like two decades or something, but they have excerpted like often like one pagers or two pagers that those movements were putting out. So it's like, you can grab some debate those people were having or some summary of how they framed their issues, what was their kind of manifesto or their call to action. And it's really short. And so have for me, sometimes I'm looking to access um, like Punchy, short materials from social movements. Um, and when people put out reading lists, and I would include in here anthologies because I, anthologies have been huge. Like the Insight anthologies have been vital to my teaching and and also to sort of activism, sort of I've been part of. Um, you know, anthologies, uh, you know, the various uh, anthologies about transformative justice have been really useful, so like, you know, making sure that. Um, that we can get, like the fact that you can read all Dorothy Roberts books, she's such a good example, but we can also read her like five page essay on the inside anthology and get a lot of the points. That's really great for, if you're trying to like have a conversation with a lot of people and, um, and you wanna start with like tasters and lots of things and then maybe we'll go deeper, maybe they won't, but at least you wanna make sure they understand like why it's so essential that we think about the family policing system when we think about um, state violence or whatever, you know, you like so I think that's a lot of what I like and what I'm trying to provide when I share. Syllabi, or when I recommend that people read or watch something, is I'm like, hey, this thing does this either in a concise way, or it does it in a really nuanced way, or it does it um, in a way that like um, puts it in conversation with something else people care about. Like I, I mean, that's often what I'm uh, what I'm looking for. And I, I personally like I can't tell you how important political reading groups with with other um, organizers, not through school, have been to my political development. Like that's the main way that I have developed ideas and like changed my thinking over time. So I really like love people circulating those kinds of syllabi because it means we're asking, we're telling each other like, oh hey, here's something you could read with your friends, here's something you could read with the organizers in the group, or something you guys could watch together. And um, that's the more for me.
1: Wonderful.
3: Yes to all of that. Oh yes to all of that. Yeah, I started teaching um I was at my early twenties. I taught my first high school uh, social studies class. Uh, I was a terrible teacher I was 22 I was almost the age of my students I was teaching at Harlem um, I've been teaching ever since um in formal and informal settings taught high school college age students um I, I taught a uh, night class of uh immigrant African immigrants from, uh, years ago in Chicago I have taught a lot and I see myself um I have always seen myself as a teacher slash organizer like that's kind of the the um if, if I had to, like when people ask me, like, what do you do? I'm like, yeah, I, I teach. That's how I've always seen myself in my work. And, um, and so for me, it's a logical extension of that to create curriculum. Um, I learned how to create curriculum, when I was really young, and a lot of people don't know how to create curriculum. And that's the thing that you learned as well. Um, it's not, it's not easy to figure out what pieces go together and to make sure that people can do an activity that actually gets them to get to what you want them to get to in the end. You know, like these things don't just happen. Um, I think it's, it been, it's been interesting. People have done this, you know, ever since um, Marcia Chat- Chatelaine and others started doing like the Charleston syllabus and the this syllabus and the that syllabus. People think that reading lists are a curriculum and they are not. Um, reading lists can be an archive, but they are not a curriculum per se, because you're not taking people through the activities that are needed for them to internalize the information you've provided. That, that's a curriculum, right? And so we can do both. We can do both and then some, and it's good to have all of the different things going on. And when friends of mine, my friend Rachel Herzing always says, Miriam, please like, don't make another curriculum on this thing. Like let somebody else have to do it, Like, you know, whatever. And I'm always saying to her, accordingly, she knows this is true. Who's doing it, though? Who's doing it to make it public for people who aren't in a university classroom to use? Like, where are people, where are all these curriculums that are being created around the topics we care about, so people can access it beyond uh, formal education structures, right? Um, And so I would like to not ever make another curriculum again, frankly, I just, when I finished my um, Against uh, Punishment curriculum a couple of years ago, I was like, I'm done. I'm really exhausted. It took me so long to work on that, like years. It took me years to, years to work on it, years then to uh, perfect it to what I felt was good and then uh, releasing it uh, in, in, in that kind of fashion. And I, I have to say, it's the reason it took me years was because I was trying out all the things uh, that are in there. I was trying out through workshops, some of the the activities that are in there. Um, and then figuring out which ones were good and then which ones weren't getting me somewhere. So whatever's included in there isn't just stuff that I threw in there that I haven't actually tried to teach first. That's the other part that I think is important about curriculum development is has your curriculum intervention actually been used by you to do the things that you say it can actually do <laughs> in the classroom right? so these are all important things that I, I like to make sure that I, um, that I point out, and I think this is another important part too is that the the reading list that Dean uh, has put out, the reading list that I have put out you know that is in the tradition of like a lot of librarians, um, people like Dorothy Porter who is a pioneer in, in uh, you know, LIS work, uh, Library and Information Sciences, um, who put together these really in depth at a time when Black, where, where Black people's uh, knowledge production was being actively suppressed, neglected, or ignored, put together all these reading lists of all these books that were written by Black people worldwide. That's how we know about those books, that they existed. Did she, and she did it through, at, her, at Howard, you know, the kind of Mecca of black education in some ways in the US, you go back today and you look at those uh, reading lists, a lot of those books are out of print. We never would have known the books existed because the books don't, they're not, they they haven't survived uh, the time, but we can try to look for them now because of those lists. Do you see what I'm saying? That, That means, I don't think people think about that enough, which is like you collecting a whole bunch of names of zines that probably are no longer circulating Having that on your reading list means somebody else in the future is gonna be looking for topics on trans stuff is gonna go back and look for that, that particular interesting zine on trans you know history or trans stories or whatever. And they may or may not find it, but they know it existed because somebody put together that really intensive, wonderful catalog and document archive of um, of that kind of thing. The last thing I wanna say on this, and you know this Rachel, because you know, A big part of the spaces I'm in, I always say we must have political education as a, not as a, like, it must be included in the structure of how we work together, which is why in SPNY and in other spaces I've always been in, you know, SPNY has a political education hour at the beginning of every membership meeting. And that is because it is not mandatory that everybody attend that. But it must be there every single month to remind people of the importance of political education and be there as a time and space for those who do want to gather together and study together and think together and read together, for them to have that as a structural part of how we meet. Because that tells you what our values are. And it also shows us what we think is important in the work we do together. And if you don't make those spaces a a place that is always in existence within yourself, it's like a habit you know, that becomes formed. Now, I will assure you of the hundreds of people who've come through our work over time at STNY, at Surround and Punish NYC, they're gonna, when they go to their new other homes of organizing, they're gonna bring that with them. And they are gonna also remember that that is something that ought to happen where they are. And they will continue to do that. And they will bring in a whole new generation of other people who are gonna keep doing that because it's important to do, but you have to model it You have to make it part of the structure and you have to do it, you know? So those are, that is very, very important. It's not about, it's not accidental to organize your stuff the way you, you know, you have to have an intention behind it because it actually matters (laughs) to you. So, yeah.
1: I think on that note of um, making space or including
0: something as, as a practice, of what's important to your organizing and to your social movements. I think that is a really good segue into our last sort of category, which is, I picked posters, but I think art art more generally can be can be the thing that we talk about. I think in, in a lot of the media that we've talked about so far, um, in the political education that we've talked about, I think uh, making, making it artistic or visually pleasing can sometimes uh, give way to trying to convey as much information as possible or even sometimes too much information, um, like really valuing the written word over other ways of expressing things. So I did wanna talk about art and acknowledge that it is really important to our social movements. And as I, Kind of the set it appears in pretty much every medium we've discussed so far. Um, it's arguably one of the smallest units of information that we've discussed. Posters are usually one page. Sometimes there will be series of posters or art pieces that do, do a collective lift of conveying a certain idea or theme. Um, but. It it honestly might be as far as like one unit items go, it might be the most appropriate thing that we've talked about in terms of discussing archives. And I think in particular thinking about, um, if we were thinking about how someone very far in the future will look back at all of our projects, like what are the things that will survive? And I think uh, MK did talk, did talk about this earlier uh the actual like physical media that we print on now are just such shit that like a lot of books we have other things that we have might not make it but I think art is something that depending on what what exact medium it is um might be a lot more long-lasting uh so I think maybe thinking about the the actual visual aspect of this and then maybe the durability of the format would be a good way to think about um, the importance of art and posters to our social movements. And I think one particular framework that I gave for this was posters are really important to participatory defense campaigns and protests, I think, as very Concrete examples of how they show up in our social movements, but as I did say at the beginning of this intro, I think they show up in a lot of our movement work and political education. So, I think I'll pose this one to Dean first.
2: It's funny because I'm not thinking about the archival value right now. When I'm, I've been thinking while you were talking about a few different projects, like this one I worked on for a long time over over different years, uh, called. Queer Trans War Band, where we were we were creating sticker designs and poster designs, and also printing stickers and posters, um, and flyers. And the idea it, it is um, doing anti-military recruitment at queer and trans events, um, like prides and things like that, especially during this period where like queer and trans people have been. Um, you know, allowed to join the military, which is this whole, like, really horrifying framing that the military is like a site of, like, wonderful employment and, um, you know, liberation for queer and trans people. So we, and, and also during a period where the U.S. anti-war movement has been very, very minimal. Um, and so trying to really articulate the queer and trans anti-war framework and directly support people who are vulnerable to military treatment to find out what the military actually was in the midst of this form propaganda. And so we created these, you know, worked with various social artists, create these sticker and poster designs that people can print themselves wherever they live to go, or else we were mailing out tons and tons of posters and stickers. And to me, a lot of what's going on with those posters and stickers is actually a moment of belonging. It's not really because it's things that last. It's like the moment where I'm at tra- the Trans March in Seattle, and I'm handing you these stickers. And we've also done this a lot with, like, stickers and posters about, like, being against the youth jail bill from a queer perspective or being like, we it's like trying to make a queer and trans entry point for people into a more radical politics that includes whatever the local campaigns are we're doing that are anti-racist or anti um and anti-military, et cetera. Like the moment of like getting a sticker and putting on your water bottle or your notebook or like having this poster in your house or like, I think this can be true of like t-shirts and stuff like this. Like this experience of being like, oh, I can take on this identity. I'm being invited to have, to be this type of person who has this thing. It's, you know, it's got a consumer element too, but I've, I've talked to people over the years a lot in different kinds of membership organizations, how when you're trying to build a membership in an org, it can really be meaningful to people to have a hoodie or to have like, in, or like in our, in our group, um, uh, uh, Queers Against Israeli Occupation, uh, The Queers Against Israeli Apartheid in Seattle in our queer group, we created matchbooks that were like gold and shiny that said like an anti colonial message inside. And like we were like handing out gay bars. Like, how do we get people to like to feel like a kind of um, like, like a sense of like th- the palpability of that, but like the unfaltering message, like the clarity of the message? So I'm just thinking about that piece of it. And I'm also thinking about like times in my, I'm right now remembering when the, Uh, when the RNC, when the Republican National Convention came to New York, I guess it was 2004 and the DNC was in Philly. And so a lot of us were doing a lot of um, organizing and being at at the various events surrounding that. And we wanted to intervene on some of the things happening inside even those protests with other protesters. Like we wanted to insert an abolitionist message or insert queer and trans liberation message or whatever in spaces that might have liberal politics or might have like a really limited anti-war politics. Oftentimes we're intervening even in our own movements and moments like that where you can hand somebody something visually stimulating, that they're going to look at like some kind of handbill or sticker like that um, feels really meaningful. And also having moments where people refuse to take it from you and getting a, like getting a read on things. Like I remember there was one year um, where at a lot of queer and trans events around the country during the pride season, people I knew we were all handing out sticker that was anti-cop and and also a sticker that was against islamophobia people would take the islamophobia one they wouldn't take the cop one and so we were like aha uh-huh. we did like the intervention you know that political moment maybe that was around 20 i can sometimes maybe in the early teens or something you know like we we're like okay like what's you know what's needed here like what is um what's the place where the deeper political ed is needed because people were surprised to find that like just kind of like normie you know queer sort of like interested enough to go out to an event, but not necessarily politically involved. Like what's what's gonna bridge those people into the politics that we are trying to share? And what's the like invitation that's gonna delight them enough and make them curious enough and not scared that they are like, take it from you. Even just the process of being like a friendly hander out of these items being like, you know, I'm gonna like know how to like um, engage with somebody in it, even accept a little rejection and also like smooth over, like make this a socially sweet moment. Like just, I just think all of that, these objects, these beautiful objects, or these like brightly colored objects or whatever it is like really matter, you know what I mean? So I think a lot of those are just, you know, honestly not gonna like endure. Although, you know, I I do love seeing that, like, you know, um, going to an archive and seeing the stickers from that time, the posters or, you know, like sometimes um, those kinds of things become, um, you know, exhibits. uh, you know, I, there's been some really interesting, interesting exhibits in recent years of you know histories of feminist uh, organizing or queer trans organizing or whatever. But uh, but a lot of that stuff isn't going to make it anywhere like that. But it's like, what's it doing for that person that's different than reading something that's like more like they 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 have this item that is a movement item that belongs to them that they can consider like display. Um, that I think is you know in their own personal space. I think that that has some kind of role in like uh it's like
1: it's it's part of the invitation we're trying to make
3: yeah absolutely thank you for that dean i um there's a book that i really love um that i uh, sometimes give to people that is called um making the movement um how activists fought for civil rights with buttons flyers pins and posters um it's a book by david crane and it is um Everybody should just have a copy of it to read and look at because it shows the way that movements have done exactly what Dean was mentioning around creating buttons and flyers. And you'll see um, buttons that the NWCP made in 1916 that are stop lynching, um, you know, small buttons that have the, you know, NWCP stop lynching on them. Like, why did they make that? Why? Did they hand those out to people, their members and beyond? Like, what mattered about that? Because people like getting stuff and because propaganda matters <laughs> and getting that, you know, the, making art that is propagandist art is really helpful to moving and advancing our causes. Um, you know, I'm trying to, I always say like one of my pieces of my life's work is to push people to imagine, know a world without prisons and policing art plays a huge huge role in that um because i started incorporating art into my organizing work before i knew it was a conscious choice and years ago i remember reading jeff chang saying that um cultural change precedes political change and that has a lot to do with kind of the importance of what art does in the world, whether it's film or, you know, other kinds of visual arts um, because, because all of, and, and this is also Chang's idea about kind of all of the major social changes changes in the world um, requires what he called like a collective leap of imagination. And that imagination has to be seated and, uh, and, and grown and how to do that is, you know, oftentimes it's through art, through ways that people can connect together. And I think that's, I think what Chang speaks to is just one reason for why art is necessary in social movements. I also contend that actually social movements are themselves a form of collective art making. If you're paying attention to some of the most important uh, movements in our generation, in our time, whether it's Black Lives Matter or um, the Standing Rock or uh, Occupy or all of those different um, movements that have occurred, I think you'll agree, right? Um, so much in our movements are is reactionary, but art really pushes us to be visionary. And that to me is so, so, so important to think about, um, You know, art is so well positioned to help us to create new things and that's what movement making is, creation of lots of different kinds of things. I think art can be such a catalyst for that and for that kind of work. Um, You know, I don't know, it's, it's, you know, how do we think about anything else but policing in prisons? when we've been indoctrinated with the idea that that is how all of the problems have been solved. Um, I think art can be key to removing the ceilings from our imaginations, right? In order to allow us to be able to conceptualize or think through something different, something else, something different and better than what we currently have going for us. Um, And I think the last thing I'll say is art often in a way that I don't see other things being able to do in a similar way, Um, years ago I read, uh, I I really like Jeanette Winterson and um, Jeanette Winterson had said something like to the effect that art really makes a difference because it pulls people up short. And it says to folks, you don't have to accept things at this face value. You don't have to go along with any of this shit. You can think for yourself. You can dream for yourself. You can build for yourself. You know, like that, but these are the, th- I'm, at, I'm paraphrasing and this is not all she said, but you know, it, she has that notion that it has the power to disrupt and we want desperately disruption in our punishment culture. That's the whole point. We have to disrupt the way people are thinking that this is natural. This is the way things have always been. This is how they're always going to be, you know? And so in the end, to me, that it's controversial to say, but like to me, Art to me is only important to the extent that it aids in the liberation of our people. And I didn't say that, Elizabeth Catlett did, um, you know and a lot of artists don't think that that's what their work is not supposed to be political in that way. They can just do shit for art's sake and whatever. Good, do that, whatever. I might I might admire your, your work from afar but that's not the business I'm in around why art matters. <laughs> you know? um, and uh, yeah, yeah. I think those are those are some of the thoughts I have about art. And in, in terms of art and archives, I mean, Interference Archives is doing uh, amazing work of kind of preserving and making accessible the art of movement and the cultural productions of movement. If people are interested in the way that um, that work is being archived, they should go and check out Interference Archives. And it's such a, uh, as a community archive, their mission and and, and and the way that you feel comfortable in there you can actually touch all the materials there they in fact you can you, you can't donate i've donated to them over the years you shouldn't they tell you don't donate things that Uh, is one of a kind, (laughs) you know? They're like, don't donate things that are super precious here. And we're not here for preciousness. We're here for using these archives as inspiration to fuel the next generation of struggle, you know, so that people who come in here and are looking for stuff might be inspired to create stuff for this current moment, right? So like, you can go and touch all the buttons there. You can pull down all the stuff from the, uh, that you want yourself from the shelves. Like there's nobody surveilling you. There's no cameras inside to make sure you didn't steal anything. There's no, you know, that is how the archives generally are structured as a surveillance panopticon, uh, you know, Foucault style that uh, like, you know, if you can't, you, you gotta go and show your ID. You gotta, do, you don't have to show your ID when you go to interference archives, you know? You don't have to, you could just walk in off the street and be like, yo, I wanna see some posters. And they're like, here, go over there, right? Like that should be what our archives are if you're gonna have them anywhere. Anyway, don't let me go off. I'm gonna, I can go off on this for a long time because this is a pet peeve of mine around how information from movements is made inaccessible to this very same movement people later. Like, why are we putting it in behind lock and key somewhere and not allowing people to use the very thing that the people who made the shit in the first place wanted to be used? Very frustrating.
1: I think I mean we could listen to you
0: go off for hours probably um but I do I think that that sentiment is a good place to maybe invite any any last big thoughts that either of you have about archives um I do want to be mindful that I'm I'm so appreciative that you two have been here for almost two hours and have really filled up the space with a lot of ideas uh and I do also want to open it up to other
3: people to ask questions before you have to hop off but I don't, don't really know ask, ask, why don't we go yep. to the questions okay just yes, so because I have I do have to get off soon so I just want to make sure I get some question time in.
1: sounds good does anybody have any questions Kim why don't you go
4: Okay um so I have um two questions and but well one of them I had discussed with Rachel so um Rachel I guess I'll start it um and you can add to it if you want um okay so one is that when I learned about this conversation uh it immediately made me think of Corky Lee um who was really important to Asian Americans and just showing um the public that, you know, yes, Asian Americans are engaged in political activity. Um, He unfortunately died uh, early in the pandemic and wasn't able to get um, vaccinated in time. So, you know, with that, you know, with Corky Lee's death in mind, and then also for me, um, I kind of think about how, um, you know, in some parts of New York City, let's say, um, Chinese Americans are kind of not as united as would be helpful, uh, in some ways. So I was wondering if, um, you two would have any guidance about, um, producing material that you think could bring, um, a group that's at times divided together, uh, and then also be able to further amplify the group's voice, um, so that's the first question. Uh, and then right after, maybe I could ask the second question.
1: Start, Mary? You can go ahead, Dean,
2: if you have an answer. I mean, I'll just say, I think, it, you know, that's... that's what's, I think that's what all of our movements are about. It's like trying to influence each other, you know what I mean? And so like, you know, the stuff I was talking about, about trying to, you know, there is a incredibly conservative, mainstream, highly visible, heavily funded, like queer and trans politics out there. That's like pro-police, pro-military, um, you know, pro-capitalist, uh, you know, centers, you know, white, upper-class people. And I spent my whole life trying to be like, that's not queer and trans politics, this other thing is, you know. And so I think it's very similar that we see these battles, you know, in, in every, in every population subgroup subculture there's this like well you know like trying to move our fellows who have something in common with us towards the the things that we that we think are actually more beneficial to our well-being and then our opponents are doing the same thing they're like the right thing for queer people or for Asian American people or for you know anybody whose target is more cops or you know they're you know they're they're, they're selling their their uh their story and so I think that like that's what community organizing is, and that's also what political education is is like trying to be like, no, we think that actually we have this history of resistance in us and actually we have these impacts of these systems that we're confronting and that this is a, a mistake, this answer that that our opponents are offering to our you know needs for well-being and, and security and belonging and um, survival and so I think that that um, is so much like what this co- whole conversation is about ultimately and like ultimately the people we are best able to influence are those who are closest to us. Like that's, I notice this a lot when I meet um, people who are just starting to organize. They imagine that they want to reach people who they don't know at all, who are nothing like them, and that that'll change things. And I'm like, actually, the, the people we can really change are the people who who share anything with us: our faith, our neighborhood, our you know um, you know any part of our background, any part of our identities. Like that's where we can our our occupation like that's who we can reach people who we already have some kind of access or contact with and that's who's like we're going to understand each other the most when we try to do political ed. we have some kind of shared reference points and so i think that's the same kind of thing about like um like influence like this is like this is these are battles about ideas and about actions we're all trying to mobilize each other to like you know hopefully like do stuff to that um that we think is is beneficial and that takes collective action so we need everybody um so yeah, I, I hope that's useful. I think that's like, that's what your thought, your question made me think about.
3: Thanks, Dean. Um, I would just say I, I'm against unity. Um, so I, I think I, I want to start there. I don't believe in it. I don't think it's achievable. I don't know why I want to be unified with random people that I have zero in common with. I am pro-solidarity, which is different. And not solidarity as a market exchange, as a... Robin D.G. Kelly says, right? Like that I am pro uh, figuring out strategic alliances over time and coming together and then breaking up. I think that's how the world operates. I don't think we need unity and I don't think we need to strive for it. And I think striving for it will just make you very miserable because if you're let's give the Chinese American example that you talked about, Kimberly, uh, you know, how different is the Chinese American community internally? Whether it's people who just got here yesterday versus people who've been here since the 19th century. These are not the same groups, <laughs> they're, just, they're just not. They happen to be subsumed under the same racial category, but these aren't, they don't have the same interests. They maybe don't, don't have the same culture. Maybe people who came here in the 19th century don't even speak Chinese. Like, what is the points at which we are seeking solidarity with each other? And so I think about, I I knew about Corky Lee because I'm from New York. I was born and raised in New York. And uh, Corky Lee's work was synonymous with, in a certain crew of folks who ran together in the 1980s and 90s, we knew of his documenting of Vincent Chin's the protest on Vincent Chin being killed um, when I was still a kid, uh, about well, 11, or t- 11 to 11 or 12 years old at that point, we knew about his documentation of the Chinatown, uh, huge Chinatown uh, uh, mobilizations that happened in the 90s against police brutality and violence and saw those photographs, that, even though he was a freelancer, saw those photographs and that was what kind of get us, you know, uh, a lot of my friends who were Asian American who were the ones who were in solidarity, black people, they held him in high esteem. And that was enough to understand why his work would be, uh, but those people were having uh, uh, strategic alliances with me. They were not strategically aligning with their parents (laughs) who in fact were like, why the fuck are you hanging out with these black folks? right?" is a huge, huge amount of anti-Blackness writ large in the U.S., but it exists across every ethnic group, okay? And so the young folks who were Asian American who were fighting on alongside us on state violence issues were often ostracized in their own communities for doing so. But I had a lot more in common with those folks than I had in common with, you know, any number of other people who were just because they also are being marginalized, we supposedly have so much stuff in common, we don't. We might be able to have solidarity with each other across difference. That should be something we strive for, but we're never going to be unified. So I think that's what I want to say about that. I hope that answers your your question
4: um, no, thank you it, it does. I think that's I think solidarity is is a better way to put it and And I had been kind of um thinking about. Um you know, just trying to uh you know amplify the the power um i guess politically of asian Americans um when a lot of times I just feel like um you know politicians like don't take the asian american block which and and again it is very different um uh seriously. And and I and I also think it's it's helpful to think about you know trying to influence the people who are closer to you also as well um, as what Dean said.
3: Yeah, one question Thank for you though is is there an Asian American block? That's the thing I don't like. Which Asian American groups are we talking about? Because a lot of Vietnamese folks living in Minneapolis have closer connections to black to the black quote block on a certain level than they would to uh, the uh, Desi block of doctors from Atlanta who are hyper-conservative. Do you
4: know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, I do, I mean, that. you know, I sort of, I think that there is some, um, I think, you know, I think that there is kind of, s- there are some qualities and some shared kind of issues, um, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: you know, just like generationally, for instance, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that Asian Americans are, um, Asian Americans, um, you know, oppose, um, like really harsh immigration policies, for instance, just kind of given, um, Japanese Americans' history of being incarcerated. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, I, so... I think that younger Asian-Americans are generally um, a little uh, are more liberal and then um, the older generation is less so. But I I, know I I mean, I totally understand that um, there are a lot of cultural differences as well. And um, and really like outreach should be sensitive to those differences. And responsive to them. Um, I also just kind of, uh, I I also just kind of wanted to ask, um, both of you, um, just any kind of general thoughts about TikTok, because I feel like, well, I don't use it very much. Um, I do kind of get the sense that it's kind of like the medium equivalent
1: of blogs right now. And sorry, I just want to pop in, um, I think this
0: might have to be our last question. I don't know Dean or MK if you have any thoughts on TikTok off the top of your head. Um But yeah, we we really appreciate you being here with us. So,
2: I'll pass it to you I apologize. for the I do have to go and um, I- I got an extension to stay here till 11 and now it's after 11 um, but yeah thank you so much for um, for hosting us um, Rachel and for pulling this together and everybody for being here I'm really excited that this conversation was recorded and um, I can listen to it again later really glad to be here great to be with you as usual Miriam. Bye Dean, Sia, um,
3: Rachel if you want if there are other questions I can stay until 15 so if there are other questions I can answer I'm happy to do it bye Dean um so yeah so if folks have questions please uh you can ask a couple more before i have to jump off i just have something at 2:30 i have to be at so um yeah so i would just say that um kimberly i don't have any tiktok i'm 0% on tiktok i don't even know how to use it i hope i stays that way it seems like a platform that is very dynamic right now um, you know, obviously using a lot of video and stuff like that. I know it sells a lot of books for people. That's about the extent of it. And I also know the government apparently is trying to uh, go after its owner for ties to the Chinese government. I have no idea. Um, so I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer around it.
0: I think, um, I'm not sure if this is noteworthy but I think MK's phone
3: can't even access TikTok. I don't even no. know if there are other <laughs> ways to can't. access TikTok. But I know. I can't access TikTok everybody. So just FYI you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, I feel like talking about cell phones could have been a whole other topic. Uh Dean has actually written or, you know, like really old blog posts about um being against high-tech cell phones or just cell phones in general. And it is, it's really interesting to reflect on how that used to feel possible, but now um, we use cell phones for so much, but MK is somebody who doesn't really use a cell phone for much.
3: Exactly, exactly. And I've been made fun of about this for many years by younger folks I'm in community with, and you know what, whatever. I'm not gonna be as as you all are. <laughs> and also people know if they need to reach me, they actually have to call me or email me, so it makes me less accessible. <laughs>
1: And you, oh, Karen, go for it.
5: Thank you. Hi. Yeah, um, I do have a question. And thank you so much for coming to speak with us. Um, My question is kind of around the issue of anonymity, I guess, in general, which I feel like has, I have like several questions around it, or I feel like it goes in very different directions, because I really love what you were both saying about like, that the anonymity can sort of make you free to sort of muse about things you might not be free to talk about. And there's certainly speaking of surveillance concerns around people like coming for you, like doxing is an issue that I was like talking about in one of my classes recently and like how it kind of raises these questions around like speech and making more speech. And then also the potential for people to kind of, harm and um i was actually I've, I've read some of your work i will say and i was actually i'm someone who has liked to be like anonymous like mm-hmm. i was a vocal performer for a long time and i had like a fake a different version of my name that i would use for that and like um but i was really moved by what you had written at some point about coming to at, to attribution more for yourself that people had encouraged you to think about attribution as a way of of putting some of these markers in place, like you were saying about a text that might not exist anymore, but we at least know it existed. And that the loss of the name of people um, would sort of like remove a thread of continuity that could be helpful for people later. And that even more anonymity was sometimes the shield for people whose voices would ordinarily be silenced and that there is something to say for like standing up and having more of those voices. Um, in the conversation. So I guess just sort of like in the way that anonymity can be both protective and also keeping us from sort of other connection, like if you could just talk about how that sort of plays out right now.
3: Yes, yes. Thank you, Karen. Um, I, um, yes, I've had a very fraught relationship with uh, a public uh, presence in the world. Um, I grew up uh, through movement being taught by people who told us all and drilled it into us. It was organizers in the back, leaders on front. And you as an organizer were a background player and the leaders that were cultivated were the ones who took step forward. Um, And those leaders had to be the people who were most impacted by the various things that you were fighting on. So I really, it was drilled in me. Um, I also heard a lot about uh, pro and, you know, surveillance and the fact that, you know, all the people, if you're always up front, you're not only going to be more vulnerable to being uh, taken out, but you also are in a position where you're going to have to worry about things in a different kind of way. So I grew up in that world. And I also grew up in the world where, as you, I mentioned to you all before, I was a zinester from a young age where DIY culture was really like non-attribution. It was You know, you just kind of use what you use. It didn't matter who made it. It was like information activism at its finest, you know. And um, so I I grew up in those cultures and those cultures made, so I I just was doing my work. I was just doing my work constantly in the background. I was making all this stuff. I wasn't putting my name on it. I was creating all this stuff. It wasn't until a friend of mine confronted me when I was probably in my mid thirties at that point um, and said something to me that really, pierced me and it was my friend Melissa who was like you know it's interesting to me that you spend so much of your time reclaiming the work of black women of the past in various ways historically and lifting up their work and naming them and all that other kind of stuff and you have invisibilized yourself and I was like "Ah!" you know I had a real moment of that first of all I didn't realize I didn't I don't I really didn't think about it that way at all I, I don't think I but I, I really didn't. And I, it was like a gut punch. I mean, not only that, but, you know, she's a very good friend of mine of long standing, and she's white. And this also had an impact on me, um, for lots of reasons, which I won't, I won't get into, uh, not because it hurt me in any kind of way, but I was like, Hmm, like I, I do probably have a responsibility, particularly to a lot of young people that I support in developing their leadership. Um, if I'm kind of, erasing myself from the those lineages and that what you read about uh, you talked talked about Rachel around the kind of genealogies of of art you know of struggle like i they know me and they know what i meant to them but no my work isn't going to be visible to them. They won't be able to discover it. They don't know all the curriculum I've written without putting my name on it. So it really, it set me in a little bit of a spiral for a few years, actually, a good three years, I think, um, of really soul searching around what did I, how did I, you know, how do I make, this was before I had a blog. Um, and so you, even at that point, when I had my blog, I called it Prison Culture. I didn't put my name on it. So you can see I was still struggling with that, with that over time. And I still struggle with it if I'm to be honest. But for all the reasons that you mentioned um, before in your your thoughts, it was about, I realized I think I had to step into taking responsibility and accountability for the work I actually put out in the world. The more people started to know who I was, that it kind of was shifty if I didn't attribute ideas that I had to myself like because nobody could argue with them and come back to me and say this is bullshit or even hold me into account call me in um call me in if I'm making a bunch of arguments that are hurtful or harmful or whatever like no one could reach you if you're anonymous um and I thought that outweighed all the other stuff that comes with not being anonymous which are very serious things um you mentioned doxing I mean I've been so much I've had so many things happen to me. I I I live with daily, weekly death threats. I am, you know, like I, I've had to change a lot of how I live in my world, even though I've always I've always known I've been surveilled by the by the government, you know, in different ways. And that's not that's not any sort of paranoia, that's just fact. Like I know my work has been surveilled for a long time, but it's different when some rando on the internet can can get at you. Um so, yeah, so I, I say all that to say that I really feel a sense of, um, I think about it a lot, I wrestle with it every day, I don't I don't appear on television on purpose, I don't like to be on camera, I don't like my photo, there's three photos of me probably on the internet circulating by necessity at this point, um, that's it, you know. So I don't think, I don't know if that answers your question, but it does tell you how I how it's been a struggle for me and it hasn't been straightforward. But I know I owe it to, I do owe it to my communities to at least be known as the person who did the thing um, because I should take all of the criticisms along with whatever accolades might come.
0: Thank you, Thank you. MK. Um, I think I'm gonna pass it to Marcus for our final question.
3: Okay. Hopefully Great. it's quick. No, no worries.
6: It's fine. Hi, Marcus. So first, hey, thanks so much for this. And thanks to Dean also. Um, so my question is about like misinformation and, and claiming narratives and how that plays uh, with anonymity. Um, and I'll just say I grew up in the punk community um, and like there was a lot of zines. And I don't know if this is true of all zine culture, but my feeling is that um, there was less ill-intentioned kind of misinformation with anonymous zines than we have um, with current like online uh, anonymous information sharing. And yeah, so I'm just curious like One, is that just because uh, zines take time and care um, and then are more creative like that? or And then, you know, what are your thoughts about, like, how do we maintain, um, how do we allow people who are actually from a community to um, name their narrative and not be co-opted by um, bad actors?
3: Yeah, um, what a question! I think I would say the difference between zine culture and internet a culture at large is that zine culture was a culture that, like, a very coherent culture in the sense that even though we had we had different interests, you know, there were the punks and the DIY kind of culture makers and the artists and the, you know, all the different kind of ways the people who were movement people, like all that. Stuff the reason you made zines was because you wanted to communicate your truth. I really feel like that's important. People weren't, you weren't gonna spend all your time figuring out where to go to Kinko's, making the photocopies, cutting the shit out, like the amount of stuff you had to do to make your project, make your product. It was like, you were a maker of a thing. That took time and energy and investment and you wanted to it was because you were trying to communicate in some way whether it was trying to communicate feelings you had or a sense of politics or history or art or whatever you were trying to communicate with other people so there was a there was a there was a prize of at least having your truth you know represented in there now if you're on like the internet and you're spouting off on stuff you can point you can do it in two seconds No one needs to know, you can have a fake screen name, you can like, you know, it's just different. It's not, I just think it's a different kind of consideration, a different medium, a different culture, um, all of those things together. And to make something takes a lot out of you. And if you're gonna make something, you're gonna be less likely to invest a whole bunch of time for evil, in my opinion. Um, You just are, even though people do evil things and make evil, they like to do evil things quickly and without you know and and for with precision and get and then keep it moving um it's it's different in that way so that's what I would say about it yeah that's what I would say about it thank you for your question thank you
0: I feel like that's a great place to leave it um so yeah I just want to say thanks again for taking so much time to share with us and talk about archives Absolutely.
3: It is my pleasure. And thank you for the invitation. And I always like to talk about archives. So that's a little good way to get me to talk about anything. So (laughs) smart move of an organizer. Organizing the organizers is is what you did. That's a great way. Um, Thank you so much for inviting us and for your time. And um, thank you all for your work as well. Yes. Rachel has great tactics. I wonder where you got all of that. You learned that.
1: I don't know.